Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Most people who have embarked on a really big project have faced some sort of obstacle, which is exactly what happened to Fred Stutzman, except the obstacle that Stutzman encountered changed his life, and it became his opportunity. This all happened about a decade ago when he was a student at the University of North Carolina trying to finish his graduate degree. I'd go to coffee shops to do work and to try to write, but I would always get sidetracked by social media. So Stutzman, who had taken time in between college and graduate school to, in part, do computer programming, wrote some code that prevented him from getting on the internet when he was trying to do work. There's the secret that most people don't really want to talk about, but we're addicted to technology. I called my software freedom because that's how I felt when I started using it. I felt liberated. And for the first time in a while, I felt that I had control over technology, not the other way around. The irony of calling your software freedom when it locks you out of the internet, it says a lot about the allure and excitement of Facebook and Twitter, email, words with friends, Candy Crush, Instagram, all those other shiny baubles that we love. But Stutzman felt like there were other, more important things he could be doing. Spending time with family, participating in activities he loved, pumping out a dissertation. If productivity is about intention, right, I really think it's productivity is about how deliberately we work, which leads us to accomplish more. The internet and our phone, especially, are where our, our intention so often goes to die. A few years after Stutzman finally finished his PhD, Chris Bailey spent a year reading everything he could about productivity and trying to be as productive as possible. You know, we, we start off with the best of intentions. I'm just going to check the news, and 25 minutes later, we're still in bed, or we're still on the lunch break, or we're still in a stall in the washroom. And so, you know, we fall into these rabbit holes. Both Stutzman and Bailey turn their struggles with distraction into something rather extraordinary. Stetsman's computer program, Freedom, quickly became a success. Famous writers started using it. Nora Ephron, Zadie Smith, Nick Hornby, Dave Eggers. They knew what Fred Stetsman knew. Apps are mostly designed to entrance you, and entrance you they do. Chris Bailey, meanwhile, wrote a book about his year of investigating productivity. It became a bestseller, but just as Stetsman's creation had an element of irony built in, so did Bailey's. As Bailey watched his book become popular, success began to eat away at the very skills he had worked so hard to learn. I noticed that myself, I began to get more distracted than I was when I was writing the book and in the midst of the publicity cycle for that book itself. Uh, I was tending to email notifications more often throughout the day. I actually downloaded Twitter on my phone. You know, if you ever want a, a surefire way of making yourself sad, just download Twitter on your phone. <laughs> you know, I was in that world as well. I was poking around on Instagram, scrolling and refreshing the Explore tab. You know, simple things that a lot of us do, but that were quite novel for the life that I was living, which was hopefully a more intentional and productive life. And that honestly, if, if I may be candid, went against a lot of the advice that I gave in the book that I had just written. Chris Bailey knew he had to get back on track. And using himself as a test case, he started to investigate why, despite our best efforts, we so easily lose focus. He wrote a follow-up book called Hyperfocus, looking at what scientific research reveals about how the modern world impacts our ability to concentrate. And he says, 
If you have a hard time focusing, don't be too rough on yourself. It's not our fault. It's simply the way in which our mind is wired. Because there's this novelty bias embedded within our mind's prefrontal cortex, the logical center of our mind, that rewards us with a hit of dopamine, that stimulation chemical, for every time we focus on something new and novel. And so what this means is we wake up and then we see that we got three emails overnight. We look at the email, we get a hit of dopamine. We bounce over to Twitter, we get another hit of dopamine. We bounce over to Instagram, we get another hit of dopamine. I mean, not only because it's stimulating, but it caters to our need for validation and, and acceptance within a group dynamic. He says encountering a bunch of apps every day is like stepping into an arcade. And the arcade of distraction that's all around us is working pretty darn well. One of the most alarming statistics that I encountered over the course of writing Hyperfocus uh, was that when we do work in front of a computer, especially when our phone is nearby perhaps, we focus on one thing for just 40 seconds before we switch to doing or thinking about anything else. Bailey points to the work of Gloria Mark, a professor at the University of California, Irvine, who has studied focus and our ability to multitask. Though ability may not be quite the right word. And people sometimes think of multitasking as working on two things at the same time. And that's impossible for human beings to literally work on two things at the same time. You can walk and chew gum, but this is an unconscious kind of uh, process. Mark says that two tasks that require more conscious focus cannot be done at the same time. So what we really end up doing is toggling quickly between one task and another, about every 40 seconds, hundreds of times a day. And we switch faster when we have an instant communication channel open, like Slack. Chris Bailey has now traveled all over the U.S. and Canada speaking to audiences about retraining yourself to focus, which is a skill that's increasingly important in an economy with lots of jobs based on knowledge work. But paradoxically, it's also tougher to do in a world where everyone and everything feels like it's trying really, really hard to get our attention. And the tricky part about multitasking, says Bailey, is the spell it casts. It tricks us, he says, into believing it's working. Hardly anything makes us feel more productive, feel more productive mm-hmm. than multitasking because we we see all the different things that we're working on every 40 seconds when we switch between them. But I would make a really big distinction between uh, feeling productive and actually being productive. And it, it's worth starting with a, an appropriate definition of productivity because when a lot of people hear the word productivity, they think of like some guy in a suit and, you know, becoming essentially a robot. But I think the best productivity stuff out there, the best advice, is what allows us to accomplish more in less time so that we have more time for what's actually meaningful to us throughout the course of the day. Um, I know that you speak a lot to audiences about the issue of productivity. And I just wonder when you take questions, when you hear people's concerns, what are they? What do they what do you hear coming back to you about like the things that are really getting to people? Yeah. Open offices. 
okay. <laughs> if, if I can choose one thing that everybody has questions about, it, it's an open office. You know, are they good for productivity? Are they bad for productivity? So mm. when you're not in the studio, are, do you have an open office we set do. up there? We do. You yeah. do. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think of it? Well, it's funny. You tell this story in the book about how um, listening to half of a phone conversation is more cognitively demanding than listening to the entire phone conversation. <laughs> yeah. I cannot listen to half of a phone conversation. Let's say somebody's on the phone and not just completely lose track of what I'm doing. Um, so as people who work with me know, I mean, I if I need to like read your book or read anybody's book, let's say for something I'm doing, yeah. I mean, it's very hard for me to hear anything and get that work done. Oh, it's fascinating. Open offices are such a a mixed bag. I actually love that one study you, you mentioned where a one-sided conversation is more uh, distracting than a two-sided conversation because when it's one-sided, our mind has to work on overdrive right. to fill in the other side of the conversation. And so we're constantly trying to prognosticate at what the heck the other person is saying that's on the line. Is it scandalous? Is it, <laughs> what, what could they be saying? Right. Well, it's, right. a, it's, a, it's such a novel thing in my environment. But this is the challenge with open offices, isn't it? Uh, But what you find when you disassemble them with regard to our focus is they're very much a mixed bag when it comes to our productivity. They're good in some ways. Think of a a newsroom environment, for Mm -hmm, an example. mm -hmm. Uh, So if you want to get you know, stories flying around and people collaborating on a story and sharing facts and information, there's no better environment than an open office environment. You know, those open offices existed before uh, we started chopping down the walls on our cubicles for a very, very good reason. And that's because we're all more productive because of those interruptions. And so interruptions, in a way, are a necessary byproduct of doing collaborative work. And an open office makes them, of course, easier to interrupt people, as we're all familiar with. Uh, So it's worth carving out an alternative environment for when you work on those things that require full attention, if your office happens to be open. It might be going to the coffee shop that's across the street, putting on noise-canceling headphones, and then hunkering down on something. It could be a little corner of your home and uh, you could have a ritual around that, having tea, maybe playing some Mozart and then working in that way. You know, obviously we all have to work around the constraints of the place we work at and these ideas might not be in reach for everybody. But, you know, it, it does kind of introduce that idea that, okay, we do work that's collaborative, but maybe we should also respect each other's attention because we'll be more productive as a team. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking to Chris Bailey. He's the author of Hyperfocus, How to Manage Your Attention in a World of Distraction. Um, Let's talk about some solutions. Yeah. Um, So one of the things you say to do is like rid yourself of distractions, which is easily said, difficult to do. How do you tell people or how do you do yourself? Like, how do you start uh, making this really happen? Yeah. So we've painted already a kind of dystopian almost picture of what things are like right now. But luckily, there are a lot of different strategies that we can invest in over the course of the day. My favorite one is to reset how stimulated our mind is. So our minds are very, very stimulated. So because of this novelty bias that releases a hit of dopamine every time we focus on something new and novel, there's a lot of dopamine coursing through our mind. And because of that, our brain expects and and desires a 
state of stability in homeostasis. And so we continue to pay attention to the that same level of distraction throughout the day. And so what we need to do is we need to do a reset of our attention. And this is actually possible to do. It, it takes about eight days, the research shows, uh, for our mind to adjust downward into a new lower level of stimulation. Huh. And so this maps on top of research that shows that if you're on vacation, as an example, it takes your mind about eight days uh, to actually settle down. And so our vacations need to be ju just a little bit longer than, than they already are. And so over a span of eight days, I, I don't like the word detox because it's kind of trendy and it's kind of I don't know, hippy-dippy in a way, but at the same time, there's almost no better word for it, to do a digital detox for a period of eight days or so. And so for eight days, go without any notifications. Go without any inessential technological things. Pick up physical books. Get reconnected with maybe your home. Say hi to your plants, perhaps. Delete Instagram off of your phone. Delete Twitter. Delete Facebook. If you can, delete email off of our phone, which uh, trains us into feeling more needed than we actually are, you know, something I'm continually relearning. And over those eight days, the first few days might be, they'll be a chore, they'll be a challenge, they'll feel like hell, get through it because on the other side of this is a widened attention span. And so when we don't constantly crave more and more hits of distraction, we don't seek them out. We don't seek and then find distraction. And so it becomes a lot, lot easier to focus. Um, you also talk about list making as something that's important and something I hadn't heard about, um, this idea of the rule of three. So do you want to talk about like making a list and um, sort of it. thinking, yeah, thinking about right. what you're what you're going to do that day? Yeah, for sure. So the rule of three is, is one of my favorite all-time productivity rituals. And, and if I may, can I have your permission to geek out a little bit here? Sure. <laughs> okay. <So> everybody <laughs> settle down. Uh, you know, get comfortable. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, so there's this there's this measure uh, called our working memory capacity in our mind, which is essentially how much information we can hold in our mind at one time. Uh, we used to think we can hold seven or eight unique things in our mind at one time, but the latest research shows that our working memory capacity can hold around three or four unique chunks of information at one time. Okay. And this accounts for real world constraints. Again, it's not the mice in the lab. Mm -hmm. This is more uh, in situ research. So we're walking through the grocery store. We're dealing with the demands of the day. We are checking our grocery list every once in a while. We can remember three or four of the items before we have to check it again, mm -hmm. maybe less than that. But what this means is that this is a limit that's true for pretty much everybody. Three or four things is the maximum size of our attentional space. If you meditate, that actually increases the size of your working memory capacity by a about 30 or 40 percent. So if you want to remember more throughout the day, it's a pretty good way. And it actually cuts down on attentional residue that you get from switching between tasks. But that's kind of a footnote in the conversation. But so we can remember about three things at one time. And so this is why the rule works so well. If we have a laundry list, a to-do list of 15 different things, we're going to have to keep checking back on that list, much as we do with a shopping list as we go about the store. But if we have this list of three things that emergencies aside, these are the three main things I'll want to have accomplished by the time the day is done. We can remember them as we work. 
when we get distracted, we can revisit the three intentions we set at the beginning of the day. Uh, When we get interrupted, when we have a meeting, when we're coming back from lunch or the office, uh, we can revisit this list once more. Mm -hmm. And of course, at the beginning, if you're anything like me, you might accomplish one of them, if that. (laughs) But over time, uh, you kind of settle into a rhythm of understanding and, and bringing some awareness to your productivity of how much you're able to accomplish each and every day. And uh, and so in that way, you, you can understand the, your capacity for productivity every day, too. Um, you talk sometimes about going to a coffee shop, and you also talk about coffee and caffeine mm. and the role it plays, which was interesting to me. You want to talk about that? Yeah, for sure. So caffeine is something that many of us are familiar with, with regard to how it contributes to our productivity. And the research is actually quite complementary towards caffeine. It shows that it's almost a surefire way of garnering a bit more energy for the present moment and becoming more productive and accomplished. And it also boosts our, our physical performance in a similar way. But there is a cost later on in the day to consuming that cup of coffee. If you go over about 200, 300 milligrams, which I wouldn't recommend doing so with coffee, it's more than about two cups of coffee, you might experience feeling anxious. But below that point, uh, caffeine is almost guaranteed to boost how focused you feel over the span of the day. But it's worth accounting for the crash that you experience later on in that same day. And so I kind of view caffeine as a way by which we borrow a bit of energy from later on in the same day. And so, you know, we consume one in the morning, hopefully before working on an important task, but we do have to pay the price later on in that same day. And so I'm a big advocate for consuming caffeine strategically when we actually benefit from the energy that it provides as opposed to just habitually. But do keep in mind one little thing. It it actually matters with caffeine whether we're an introvert or an extrovert. And so for an introvert, we actually get more energy from our environment by default. Our our environment is a bit more stimulating to our mind, and caffeine may overstimulate us, causing a bit of anxiety or or restlessness, uh, and it might be more difficult to focus with caffeine, especially in a high-pressure situation, like if you're giving an important pitch presentation, for an example. But if you're an extrovert, caffeinate away, uh, caffeinate before working on uh, your most important tasks, and you'll get so much more out of them. Hmm. So as you travel around, as you talk to people about this issue of productivity, what do you feel like is the direction things have gone, let's say, in the last few years? Do you think people are changing their environments to become more productive? Is this becoming an even bigger problem where people are increasingly less productive? Like, what mm. What do you see? I see a lot of people who are overwhelmed. And it sucks to reflect on because, you know, we're, we're such oh, – I'm talking to you from Canada today. Mm-hmm. But – you know we're we're productive countries the united states the canada but at the same time our our wages might not be going up at the same level that mm. the economy is expanding at mm. there's a greater divide between people who are making a lot and people who aren't making enough and i i think that's leading to a lot of anxiety and it's leading to a lot of frustration with regard to how people relate to their work i will say that people do see the fact that they need to manage their attention a bit better. But one thing that I'm constantly reminding myself of, that that I'm reminding other people of as well, it's that our attention influences more 
than just our productivity. Uh, it's about more than just our work. If I learn one thing, looking through all of the scores of studies and chatting with all the experts and just hearing people out over the course of writing this book, it's that the science says that the state of our attention essentially determines the state of our lives. And so what this means is that if our attention is overwhelmed in each and every moment, we're going to feel overwhelmed as a result of that. Uh, if our attention is simple, if, if we learn to uh, maybe even meditate, if that's an idea that you're open to, uh, you know, you learn to manage that attentional space, that working memory a bit better. Uh, you think more simply because you think about one main thing at a time. And so you feel like things are within the boundaries of your control. And we have busy lives. You know, we have families. We have essentially just a series of expectations that are put on us at work, at home, whatever environment that we seem to walk into. But if there's a, a solution for calm, and if there's a solution for focus, they're one and the same. Because it, when you learn to settle down your attention and focus simply and manage your attention a bit better in this world of distraction, the fruits exceed just our productivity. They transcend our productivity. They go to our creativity. They go to how satisfied we are with our life. Hmm. The better you are, at managing your attention, the more satisfied you are with your life overall. And really, that's that's what it's all about. That That's why we seek to be more productive in the first place. It's to live a better life. It's not to become busier. It's to hopefully accomplish enough and have more time for everything that we find meaningful. Hmm. Chris Bailey is the author of Hyperfocus, How to Manage Your Attention in a World of Distraction. Chris, thank you very much. Thank you. We talked about some of the ways that you can focus better, getting rid of distractions, maybe drinking a little bit of coffee. But there's another method you can try, video game music. According to an article from Popular Science, game soundtracks are designed to simultaneously stimulate your senses and blend into the background of your brain. The perfect formula for getting into that hyper-focus mode. You can read more about that research on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.